Welcome back to the Mellow Mama podcast, where I talk all things conscious living and conscious, respectful parenting with the help of lots of great books, resources, and of course, my own experience as a mom. If you're new here, what's up? I'm Kate, and today we're going to talk a little bit more about the ego, specifically getting into the conversation of role playing and what this has to do with our experience as a parent, as a person, and any kind of relationship dynamic. Let's get started. If you haven't already listened to the previous episode in this mini book club series on Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth, I recommend starting with the first one and then just listening to these in order because the ideas sort of compound and make a lot more sense and you'll have a lot more like aha moments if you listen to them in the way that I'm presenting the information because it really is in perfect alignment with the actual book itself, which was written so perfectly. So start with that first one. But if you're like, eh, I'm already here. I'm just going to listen while I'm here. That's cool too. And I'll just go ahead and explain that the ego that we're talking about here and defining is basically a sum of all of your identifications that you have either adopted or been given from the time you've existed here on earth. All the things that you have bundled up into like a little snowball that say, okay, that's what I am. This is who I am. And the more strongly identified you are with those ideologies, with those like different concepts of the self, the more easily it is for you to feel like they are, you, they can be threatened, right? Your sense of self and your sense of value can be taken from you, outsourced. And again, like you can get defensive and all of your reactions and responses and your relationships, whether it's with your children, with your spouse, with yourself, your parents, your relatives, or just like a regular old person on the street actually have a lot to do with those identifications, with that ego. And the ego really wants to protect you right like the ego is very much kind of a friend it's like hey these are the things that have helped you be valuable these are the things that make you important in the world obviously this is a lie we are we have a birthright of value of importance of lovability but we've been conditioned also as a society to believe okay let's adopt and and it just kind of depends on your upbringing your environment and there's all these like different nuances but um let's decide okay like these are the things that tick the boxes to make you valuable as a person and then we kind of adopt that move forward in life with it and we can use it to create a sort of sense of superiority to others or inferiority to others uh, and it just really greatly impacts the way that we operate in our day-to-day lives, whether we acknowledge it or not. But the cool thing is that the more aware of it we become, the more easily freed we are from it as well. And the more we can kind of like laugh at this sense of identity and identification. And we can just say like, how silly (laughs) I'm getting worked up about this, or I'm having this response that's uncomfortable in my body. That's putting me into fight or flight mode when it's literally not an emergency. I'm not threatened whatsoever, right? We can step into this more conscious version of ourselves that knows the answers to the questions that I always say are the most imperative pieces to being a conscious individual and parent, which are, what do I think? Why do I think that? What do I feel? Why do I feel that? And then most importantly, what do I do and why do I do that? Why do I do those things? Why do I have these habits? Why do I have this conditioning? Why do I have these patterns? 
then we can shift into like the most empowered version of ourselves, right? Not just as parents, but as people living in this example that we want, that's ideal for our children to see. Leaving behind this state of survival mode, fear-based, control-based being and stepping into presence, connection, playfulness, enjoying the lightness that really does exist if you look for it in your everyday moment-to-moment life. (laughs) Hi, Romy. Letting go of image-making and self-seeking, especially in our relationships, which is where we're going to head today when it comes to playing a role and living out what intrinsic confidence and self-esteem really looks like. Not because of your doing, but because of your being, because of your, again, God-given essence. Let's now talk about role-playing and the many faces of the ego, as Eckhart says. To start this chapter, if you're reading this book, it's chapter four, Eckhart says, an ego that wants something from another and what ego doesn't will usually play some kind of role to get its needs met, be they material gain, a sense of power, superiority, or specialness, or some kind of gratification, be it physical or psychological. Usually people are completely unaware of the roles they play. They are those roles. I think this is children and adults alike. And it starts from infancy. As a measure of adaptability, we need for survival to understand how to get our needs met, understand what prevents our needs from being met, even if that means needing to disassociate, stop crying so that our parent will be attentive, so our parent will be loving, so our parent will be calm. There are studies that show and prove that babies as early as a month old understand and are aware that their parent is depressed, that their parent's anxious, stressed, angry, and it has an effect on them. In fact, in the first few years of life, more than one million new neural connections form every second. Boom, one second, over a million neural connections. How crazy and amazing is that? But why that matters is when it comes to this role-playing concept that we're really covering here in this episode, you have to ask yourself, okay, what is my baby learning? about their sense of security, their sense of safety. How do they have to adapt? Is it hard for them to get their needs met? Is that what they're learning and understanding? Are they being wired to be in a state of survival, of fight or flight, of people pleasing from a month old, right? I mean, there's another study that's so interesting that talks about how babies as early as six months old understand that their parents don't like it when they cry. We, we pacify our children, we get stressed, we get worked up, we shake them around, bounce them around, shush, 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 shush them around, right? Like, it's very obvious <laughs> to a baby, okay, what are they being, what's the message that's being communicated to them there? I don't like it when you're in a state of discomfort or distress, which is totally normal, right? This is also survival instinct on our end as the parent, but again, All those neural connections being made are saying, hey, when you do this, this is how hard it gets to get your needs met. Your parent is in a state of distress. Your parent is stressed. Your parent is upset, unhappy, which makes it less likely that you are going to continue to have your needs met, which makes it less likely that you're going to continue to be lovable, worthy of connection. And this simply just grows and grows and snowballs, especially when we look at the mainstream behaviorist methodology and approach, right? When we 
teach our children time and time again that their lovability is conditional to what we roll out I always refer to my little expression of the worthiness blueprint, right? We are just laying it out for them. We are saying, okay, here is the role that you need to play in order to get my love, affection, attention, connection. In order to be important to me and to be valued by me, here is what you need to do. Here's what you need to look like. Here's what you need to sound like. Oftentimes, that is silent and still. (laughs) And I laugh because it's just... You know, part of the conversation, again, like I've said a couple of times, definitely in the last episode regarding the ego, you kind of just have to laugh at everything almost, (laughs) like realize how simple it all really is. You know, like everybody is just desperately trying to get their needs for connection met, desperately trying to feel heard and seen and important. And we really overcomplicate everything, (laughs) you know? This messaging is just simply ridiculous. Like, oh, you gotta be this, you gotta do that, you gotta accomplish this, that, and the other, and then you're gonna be worthy. You know, we we can feel sad about it and victimized by it, or we can laugh at it and say, it just doesn't apply to me. I just don't operate in that in that mindset and I'm not gonna operate in that way with my own children with my spouse definitely not with myself and that is where the reparenting process comes in that's where Eckhart Tolle's work comes in where we can stop the inner critical parent the inner narrative this critical narrative within us that's saying you have to be like this they have to be like that in order to be lovable and creating this superiority dynamic inferiority dynamic constantly throughout our day the chitter chatter the incessant stream of consciousness that is simply robbing us of the present moment especially with our children who are unfolding before us every second of the day One of the things I find most interesting when I look at role-playing dynamics and how early they begin and how we are just conditioned from the start to develop this little role, right? That this identity of who we are and how we show up is that you might think, well, this doesn't apply to me because I've been the black sheep. I've been the odd man out from day one. I was like, you can't control me. Yeah, you don't own me. You're not the boss of me. Well, guess what? (laughs) As Eckhart Tolle puts it here on page 87, some egos, if they cannot get praise or admiration, will settle for other forms of attention and play roles to elicit them. If they cannot get positive attention, they may seek negative attention instead. For example, by provoking a negative reaction in someone else. Some children already do that. They misbehave to get attention. The playing of negative roles becomes particularly pronounced whether the ego is magnified by an active pain body, that is to say, emotional pain from the past that wants to renew itself through experiencing more pain. A lot to unpack there, but all I'm saying is, if you are the rebel, you're playing the role of the rebel. (laughs) If you've been the odd man out, you are falling into the role of the odd man out, the black sheep. And if I'm being completely honest, those roles to me are a little more achy, like they poke my heart a little bit (laughs) because if you're, if you're new or if you maybe can think back to some of my older content, I've covered this concept of testing where our children, a lot of the time, if there are a lot of environmental changes in, in general, in the first five years, especially 
with with or without all of the existing changes considered, right? Our children test us and how valuable they are to us. They test our connection to them all the time. And don't we do this in our adult partnerships as well? Mirroring our relationship that we had with our caregivers. We test, we prod for connection, especially when we're in need of it most. We kind of like to pry and and, uh, again, like our child's behavior is a perfect example where in this book, even it says, you know, negative attention seeking, or even if we can't get positive attention, first and foremost, like every person needs attention. It's a biological need. We all need to be connected with. We all need to feel seen, heard, and important. I always throw out that quote that says, every day in a million small ways, our children ask us, do you see me? Do you hear me? Do I matter? And their behavior is a reflection of our response. How we answer that question in every little moment of the day, those million times that they're subconsciously or consciously asking those questions to us through, through their behavior, through their requests, through their bids for connection, right? Uh, their behavior is going to be a perfect reflection of that. And I think that it's interesting when people use this as some sort of like, I don't know, like negative label or like slam on a person or a child. Oh, they just want attention. Well, well, that would be the perfect time to give it to them. <laughs> That's the perfect opportunity. When you think to yourself, oh, they just want attention. Oh, uh-oh, red flag should probably meet that need for connection in that person and not look at that as some sort of like negative aspect of that person's character, young or old. It's a, again, just a biological human need. In fact, there's a cool, (laughs) another cool study that talks about the importance of even the physical like hugs that we get in a day in order to promote growth, like our mental, spiritual wellness. I think it's like 12 hugs a day or something insane. Test yourself. See how many hugs (laughs) you actually receive and give on a daily basis. If you're like getting to eight, I would be impressed. Like real hugs, like 20 second hugs. That's a lot. You got to commit to that. (laughs) And it's a need. We all need it. So it's a ridiculous, preposterous thing to say this is like, oh, yeah, they just want attention, right? That's ridiculous. Well, here's the thing. That's back to why it makes me all achy inside. When people fall into that role, the, ah, yeah, I don't care what you think about me. I don't don't care if you like me or not. I'm going to do exactly what you said not to do. To test your love, to see if you'll reach out and say, hey, of course I love you, right? Like it's like when you're, when your child is little or old at any age or when even, again, even adult people will do this. They'll say like, I'm going away, like get away from me, go away. And I, you know, when this would happen with my little boy in his hard moments, I would always say like in my mind, I'm like, oh my goodness, he's, he's testing me. He wants to see, do you love me if? Do you love me when? Do you still love me at my worst, at my hardest? Like when I'm struggling, when I really, really need you, will you be there? Will you be the anchor for me? And this happens all the time in our children's hard moments, which is why it's important for us to understand ourselves, be able to regulate ourselves, get to the bottom of things like this. What roles do we play? Are we we playing? What what kind of layers do we need to peel back? How can we better understand our triggers and 
how can we really truly get present and curious about the people, especially our children, in front of us. But I would always say to myself, oh my gosh, she's testing me. And I would go right back and say, I'm never going away. You can't make me go away. And how quickly and and almost instantaneously the shift that I would always experience in his behavior and his response, that, that instant reassurance was really like almost all he needed. <laughs> and, and I'm not a big proponent of fixing behavior. In fact, I'm the opposite of that. I'm all about normalizing, getting curious again about the behavior, understanding the root cause of it, not trying to wish it away, but to rather like lean into being human and how normal this experience is, the, the ebbs and flows of life and how we process things. That being said, though, it's, it's fascinating how quickly the behavior would shift when I would simply respond with like, I'm never going away. You can't make me go away. Staying light, staying playful, staying, again, be, being that soft place to land, that anchor for him. The same thing could apply to a relationship with a husband or wife, right? If you're having a hard moment and you're like, just leave me alone, right? I think especially if you're somebody with an anxious or avoidant attachment style rooted in your upbringing, you don't really want someone to go away from you when you're having a hard time. You're testing that connection. You want to make sure that in your hard moments, they are going to reassure you and say, whoa, 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 like, I, I don't want you to be alone. I don't, I don't want to leave you here like this. I don't want to see you upset and just leave you. I don't want to, I don't want to be apart from you. I want to be here with you. I want to support you. I love you still. I love you right now. And all of this is again to just clarify that when we get into the, that mindset, we really are just sinking into a role of, okay, well, if I can't get my needs met for connection like this, then I'll, I'll play the, this role of, again, like I'm going to be the ne- negative attention seeker person. I'm going to test and prod and provoke, which of course we all know does not typically provide us the outcome that we really want, that we are actually deeply yearning for. In fact, it ends up leading us to attract more people that are going to further put us into the pain body and and increase the pain body, increase the trauma that we experience and increase our avoidance or anxiety when it comes to attaching to other people, bonding with other people, and just in general relating to others. Eckhart Tolle even mentions here, some egos perpetrate crimes in their search for fame. They seek attention through notoriety and other people's condemnation. He says in quotes, Please tell me that I exist, that I'm not insignificant, they seem to say. Such pathological forms of ego are only more extreme versions of normal egos. This is where I really want to get into some specific examples of different roles that we might play. Because just like when trying to identify how the ego is showing up, I think that being able to take a look at this and saying, wow, okay, yeah, that's me. I, I definitely do that. Or I've had a tendency to operate there in the past. This is how we build awareness and free ourselves from the, these patterns, free ourselves from these roles and get back to, again, our authentic essence. He says, a very common role 
is the one of victim, and the form of attention it seeks is sympathy or pity of others' interests in my problems, me and my story. Seeing oneself as a victim is an element in many egoic patterns, such as complaining, being offended, outraged, and so on. Of course, once I'm identified with a story in which I assigned myself the role of victim, I don't want it to end. And so, as every therapist knows, the ego does not want an end to its problems because they're part of its identity. If no one will listen to my sad story, I can tell it to myself in my head over and over and feel sorry for myself and so have an identity as someone who's being treated unfairly by life or other people, fate or God. It gives definition to my self-image, makes me into someone and that is all that matters to the ego. One of the things that I like most about uncovering the roles that we're playing and uncovering the ego is that we can actually get what all of us truly want and it's such hard work and it's honestly like kind of a courageous feat because we've been conditioned for so long our entire lives practically to perform to play this role in all these various roles oftentimes I mean I think I was like a little shapeshifter at one point in my life. Like, okay, this group of people likes this version of me. This person likes this version of me. And I would just kind of subtly shift different parts of myself or hide different parts of myself everywhere that I went, you know, and and in different circumstances. And in doing so, I think I created the illusion that I was making real connections with people. Okay, like these people love me and I love them. But they didn't even know me, right? Like they didn't get to know the real unfiltered me, the, again, most authentic version of me. And Eckhart Tolle actually mentions this also. He says, in the early stages of many so-called romantic relationships, role-playing is quite common in order to attract and keep Whoever is perceived by the ego as the one who is going to make me happy, make me feel special, and fulfill all my needs. I'll play who you want me to be, and you'll play who I want you to be. That's the unspoken and unconscious agreement. However, role-playing is hard work. And so these roles cannot be sustained indefinitely, especially once you start living together. (laughs) When those roles slip, what do you see? Unfortunately, in most cases, not yet the true essence of that being, but that which covers up the true essence, the raw ego divested of its roles with its pain body and its thwarted wanting, which now turns into anger, most likely directed at the spouse or the partner for having failed to remove the underlying fear and sense of lack that is an intrinsic part of the egoic sense of self. I know, again, like sometimes this book is a lot to process, but wow, just let that sink in. So many partnerships dissolve. So many romantic partnerships, especially, right? There's such a high divorce rate and so many people not getting divorced, but in relationships where they are deeply dissatisfied, they feel like their needs aren't met, they don't know how to express their needs, they're tired of expressing their needs, expressing their needs can be exhausting because it leads to the partner getting in their ego, getting defensive, getting passive aggressive. I mean, it just, the list goes on and on. And what's interesting is that even still, these partnerships start in the same way and people say, oh, people change or people don't change. And when people say people change, I often think about this book. And I think about what he's saying here, like that you just can't sustain the role. (laughs) You can't. It's just, 
it's impossible to remain in an inauthentic state all the time when you live together and you're you see each other all the time right and also just like when life's difficult moments arise and those ebbs and flows that i was talking about show up in your life in your relationship especially when big drastic changes come about when you become parents and you have to navigate new challenging things together as a team and Maybe all of these like past little T or big T traumas start to surface. You start to see different types of responses and reactions that are uncomfortable. Even just basic patterns and conditioning and habits that go against your blueprint for what's good and what's bad and what's lovable and what's worthy of connection, right? Start to show up. Then all of a sudden, we, we again like get into our inferiority or superiority mindset and start listing all the reasons why this person is not worthy to us anymore not to mention it's so fascinating to me that we get so fixated on keeping keeping people almost like little possessions like people will date people and stay with people that they you know aren't they aren't they don't feel that like deeper spiritual connection to but they don't want to like let them go they don't want to lose this person and they definitely don't want to be lost first like they they don't want to be broken broken up with they want to be the breaker upper if they do have this separation happen (laughs) all because they don't they don't want to be reminded again of this conditioning that we all have subconsciously you're not enough you're not worthy enough you're not valuable you're not worthy of connection but it's interesting to ask yourself the question Is there anything really to be lost if it was gained on inauthenticity? Is there anything, like, what are you holding on to if the entire situation is based on a role that you are playing and that the other person is potentially playing? If you can't be your authentic self, if you can't live in this present state and your authentic real essence, the real you and you're playing all these roles and attached to all these identifications, what exactly is it that you're losing, that you're letting go of, except for just a a fake situation? It's not even reality. You're just playing a role. I like how Eckhart says the following, what is commonly called falling in love is in most cases an intensification of egoic wanting and needing you become addicted to another person or rather to your image of that person. It has nothing to do with true love, which contains no wanting whatsoever. The Spanish language is the most honest in regard to conventional notions of love. Te quiero means I want you as well as I love you. The other expressions for I love you, te amo, which does not have this ambiguity is rarely used, perhaps because true love is just as rare think he also says that true love is recognizing the self in another and you know there's there's so much to be said about that but maybe that's like a conversation for a different day like what is love maybe I can find somebody who I really like I don't know I like their perspective on romantic love and partnership maybe Harville Hendricks um, to have on the podcast to discuss that but it is interesting how this is an important thing to reflect on when it comes to role-playing and when it comes to the ego, especially if you're parents or you want to be parents, understanding the dynamic of your marriage, 
or relationship, partnership is vital, especially because it's going to impact your children and how they view relationships, how they view partnership. The next part of this chapter is kind of challenging too to process and it's about letting go of self-definitions. When I like look at social media and maybe I stumble across a new account, I often see all these like self-definitions, even my channel, you know, the mellow mama. Of course, I'm a million different types of mama. (laughs) My dad named my channel. I feel like I've said that a million times on here, but my dad was like, you're a chill mom and like you're going to help people be relaxed parents. I think you should be the mellow mama. He's a genius at marketing. (laughs) It's a really good name, honestly, for me. But at the same time, like, it's not all that I am, right? Like, it's not an all-encompassing thing. I'm just mellow all the time. Like, hey, <laughs> I, do I have, like, a naturally laid-back disposition? I think, I think I'm just naturally a pretty emotionally regulated person. But, but I'm a million things, right? Like, my essence is not just that. And so even just um, mother is something that I also often see when people write their little bio and say, like, who they are mom of two, uh, wife, doctor, something like, right, we all have these sort of like self-definitions of who we are. And he says, certain functions began to be allotted to certain people, ruler, priest or priestess, warrior, farmer, merchant, craftsman, laborer, and so on. And a class system developed. Your function, which in most cases you were born into, determined your identity, determined who you were in the eyes of others, as well as in your own eyes. Your function became a role, but it wasn't recognized as a role. It was who you were or thought you were. Only rare beings at the time, such as the Buddha or Jesus, saw the ultimate irrelevance of caste or social class, recognized it as identification with form, and saw that such identification with the conditioned and the temporal obscured the light of the unconditioned and eternal that shines in each human being. I want to read that again. <laughs> so this this is like confusing, right? This is a confusion of who we really are. And that is, again, it's like obscuring the light of the unconditioned and eternal that shines in each human being. I like to remind people listening to my podcast or my videos that when we raise our children consciously, When we give them the messaging from day one, you don't have to chase my love. You don't have to work for my love. I'm watching you unfold before me. You are perfectly made, perfectly designed, and I'm here to model life for you, to guide you, but you're also guiding me. (laughs) I'm learning from you and your perfect design. When When we give our children that, that blessing, that gift, from infancy, that you can trust that I am going to be here, your safe space to land, your anchor, loving you without conditions, they can go forward in life not seeking that out uh, outside of themselves, outsourcing that to every, what is the expression, Tom, Dick, and Harry on the street, you know? And I think it's important if you... And like I, like you, you and I are the same if you are someone that's like, I did not receive that messaging growing up. I did have to work for that. I had to outsource 
my value to other people, I want to remind you to, to re-listen to that little sentence, the unconditioned and eternal that shines in each human being. That doesn't exclude you. That's every person, every perfect child, right? We, we cover up this beautiful light in ourselves and in our children when we lay out that blueprint, when we start to attach ourselves to these self-definitions, to these roles, our function being our value. It's just, the more you think about it, again, I start laughing. I'm like, how silly, how silly that we've done this for so long and how exciting that we can, we can now, as a community, as a greater society, move forward and, and let go of those self-definitions and associating them with our value. All that said, things have obviously changed a lot and also little in my personal humble opinion. I think history truly does repeat itself and people don't haven't really changed too much. I think technology has really changed. I think that the way people are living and eating and just like functioning in terms of the family unit, I, I think a, there have been a lot of shifts, but our basic human needs have really stayed the same always. And so to me, that sends the message like, well, people haven't really changed all that much. Um, That being said, though, in our contemporary world, Eckhart states here, the social structures are less rigid, less clearly defined. Although most people are, of course, still conditioned by their environment, they're no longer automatically assigned a function, and with it, an identity. In fact, in the modern world, more and more people are confused as to where they fit in, what their purpose is, and even who they are. I think many people can relate to that. He continues to say, I usually congratulate people when they tell me, I don't know who I am anymore. Then they look perplexed and ask, are you saying it's a good thing to be confused? I ask them to investigate. What does it mean to be confused? I don't know. Is not confusion. Confusion is, I don't know, but I should know. Or, I don't know, but I need to know. Is it possible to let go of the belief that you should or need to know who you are? In other words, can you cease looking to conceptual definitions to give you a sense of self? Can you cease looking to thought for an identity? When you let go of the belief that you should or need to know who you are, what happens to confusion? Suddenly it's gone. When you fully accept that you don't know, you actually enter a state of peace and clarity that is closer to who you truly are than thought could ever be. Defining yourself through thought is limiting yourself. And I wrote, yes, with a smiley face. (laughs) But it's so true. When we finally stop, like, trying so hard to, like, figure out the puzzle, right? And, like, okay, but maybe this is who I am, and maybe that is who I am. And and trying to define this sense of self with all these, like, extrinsic things that we've been able to, I guess, you know, be exposed to in our lifetime, in our culture, in our environment, we really, truly limit ourselves. When we can let go of that, that's when we start to get to a state of peace, and presence, and we're when we're present and peaceful, that is when that beautiful light can come forward and actually shine. If you've ever been with somebody who's like 
super in survival mode all the time, like very anxious, very like gotta go, go, go all the time, gotta do, 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 gotta perform for my value, like on a subconscious level. And then you get them to just relax. It's so interesting that all of a sudden, like that is the version of the person that you fall in love with, that you're like, oh my gosh, this is their true essence. This is who I'm obsessed with. Like this is the person that I feel connected to, right? Not the, like, I don't know. I've definitely worked with people like this where they just like can't turn off. But then when you get them around like a bonfire (laughs) and they do like just stop and they're present, they're just like so lovely to be with. And you get to like just feel our, just the way that we naturally are designed to just connect with other human beings, belly to belly, or even just like in any capacity when people are being present. We can truly connect with them and it is it is a beautiful thing. Now, I like that Eckhart clarifies that obviously people play roles like or we have roles. We have functions in society, in our daily lives. Like I am a mom. I'm, I'm a mother. I'm a woman. I'm a, an educator, a mentor, a coach. I am a friend, right? I'm a sister. I'm all these things, right? These are different like functions I have. And he says, you know, of course, people fulfill different functions in this world as far as intellectual or physical abilities are concerned. Knowledge, skills, talents, and energy levels, human beings differ widely. What really matters is not what function you fulfill in this world, but whether you identify with your function to such an extent that it takes you over and becomes a role that you play. When you play roles, you are unconscious. When you catch yourself playing a role, that recognition creates a space between you and the role. It's the beginning of freedom from the role. When you are completely identified with a role, you confuse a pattern of behavior with who you are, and you take yourself very seriously. You also automatically assign roles to others that correspond to yours. For example, when you visit doctors who are totally identified with their role, to them you will not be a human being but a patient or a case history. Although the social structures in the contemporary world are less rigid than in ancient cultures, there are still many pre-established functions or roles that people readily identify with and which thus become part of the ego. This causes human interactions to become inauthentic, dehumanize and alienating. Those pre-established roles may give you a somewhat comforting sense of identity, but ultimately you lose yourself in them. The functions people have in hierarchical organizations, such as the military, the church, a government institution, or large corporation, easily lend themselves to becoming role identities. Authentic human interactions become impossible when you lose yourself in a role. I think this is such an interesting concept when we reflect on the parent-child relationship and we're going to get into that in more detail really soon. But when it comes to our everyday interactions, I really encourage you to start observing yourself and noticing, am I creating like a mental image of who I am to the other person that I'm interacting with and who they are to me. As Eckhart Tolle puts it here, instead of human beings, conceptual mental images are interacting with each other. The more identified people are with their respective roles, the more inauthentic the relationships become. You have a mental image not only of who the other person is, but also of who you are, especially in relation to the person you're interacting with. 
And a few examples that I've experienced of this in real time in my early 20s are related to having jobs in the service industry where I was given feedback time and time again to be less personable with people, to not get to know people so well, not make like conversate real conversation with people and to just do my job <laughs> to just use a more professional vocabulary to present myself in a way that was inauthentic because that was the role that I was in and again there's a function here there's functionality to being professional and there is something to be said about processes going smoothly when people have a certain decorum however there was a consistent theme in the feedback that I would get not from my employers in these circumstances but from the people I was interacting with and it was overwhelmingly positive people looked forward to those sort of human to human real authentic conversations and interactions and I felt the same way you know it made my job more enjoyable it made me like going to work it made people enjoy coming and spending time with me at having a meal or doing whatever and seeing me visiting with me and maybe that's just in my head maybe people were just being really nice but I do think that that's what people actually crave and again we're going to talk about parenting in a minute and how authenticity our children I mean and us too but they can really like sniff that out and I really hate the word sniff but you know what I mean like they have this beautiful innate sense of what's real what's authentic and they resent what's not and we adult people kind of we don't stop having that instinct but we start to understand social normalities right like oh well this is just the way it goes and this is actually a really great segue into the uh the next concept happiness as a role versus true happiness Eckhart describes the following that all of us have encountered especially if you're American especially if you're from the Midwest Uh, he says how are you just great couldn't be better true or false Just fine is a role the ego plays more commonly in America than in certain other countries where being and looking miserable is almost the norm and therefore more socially acceptable. It is probably an exaggeration, but I'm told that in the capital of one Nordic country, you run the risk of being arrested for drunken behavior if you smile at strangers in the street. That is hilarious. And if you are somebody (laughs) who lives in that region of the world, let me know. If that's the case, you know, if it's if it's more appropriate and socially accepted to look miserable and cold and closed off, because that's definitely not what it's like here, especially in Ohio, where I'm from, born and raised. I think that people are honestly, you know, when I lived in California, I got people people very easily picked up on the fact that I was not from there and that I was probably from the Midwest it was like I guess an easy thing to characterize just based on the friendly nature of Midwesterners there's like lots of jokes about it how like you'll not let somebody else let you go at a four-way stop um or like in general like they're just super super warm and friendly and like you don't you don't not wave to somebody after they let you go in traffic right or if they get in front of you you don't not wave if somebody does 
eventually like you give in and you go at a four-way stop and they're waving you on and you're waving them on there's just all these social niceties here so it's kind of funny for me to hear about that but it says if there's unhappiness in you this is just talking about that that is like an aspect of role-playing though you know like when people say how's it going and you're like oh fine just fine or oh good how are you and then you just kind of keep walking by again this is sort of just like a social norm especially here in the midwest in america but in all of the united states i would say with the exception of major cities where people just aren't looking to make a deeper connection and people are aware of that and they're past the role-playing stage i think they're playing different roles um but anyway here it's very normal and and yet at the same time although we are i think pretty authentically kind and warm uh, to one another culturally here in Ohio specifically, I think that there is so much just role-playing because you can't just outrightly answer that question for real or it might disturb some people, you know? <laughs> if somebody says, how's it going? It's in passing to be friendly and kind and you're like, actually pretty terrible. Um, I'm feeling really discouraged right now and I'm feeling like, I don't know, lonely or whatever is going on in your life. Like, things that might even be hard for you to process, it might be very overwhelming, you know, and it would result in a real, you know, it would force people to be vulnerable and emotionally available or to, I don't know, just give some sort of like deeper acknowledgement and connection that sometimes we're just simply not ready for or available for or like comfortable with. And that, again, just like how I mentioned before, like there is something to be said about functionality and, and, a sort of like decorum when it comes to manners and expectations for people that are like reasonable (laughs) but also I think that this could be really transformative on the whole like you could at least be a little more honest and just be like you know not not the best day or like not the best moment but it's it's, you know I'm working through it going through my day you know finding like more ways to bring awareness to your most authentic self and um at least at least for your own sake being as authentic as you possibly can be and stepping away from this like again performative nature and state that so many of us are operating in a lot of the time. He says here, if there is unhappiness in you, first, you need to acknowledge that it's there. But don't say, I'm unhappy. Unhappiness has nothing to do with who you are. Say, there is unhappiness in me. Then investigate it. A situation you find yourself in may have something to do with it. This deeper curiosity is something that I mention all the time with parents specifically right if if there's something going on and in the behavior that you're seeing with your kids that's making you uncomfortable or upset bothered triggered whatever you want to call it and you're having a response that's not not conscious right um and rooted in your own conditioning and childhood experiences it's important to step away from all that stuff and step away from this like again conditioned want egoic need to label and diagnose like oh like my kid is bad I'm a bad parent because my kid is bad people are going to think that I'm a bad parent people are going to think my kid is bad people are going to think my kid is this that or the other that's not favorable 
by society, which whatever, who cares what anybody thinks about you? It's like all a show. It's all role playing. There's no better or worse than you're not above or below anybody. This is just, again, I'm going on a rant, but still like just an important reminder. Like once you get into that pit, like of comparison and deep subconscious insecurities remind yourself like this is just the ego it's just sabotaging you from being present and actually deeply connecting with the person in front of you and in many cases that's our children and what like we don't need anything to ruin that opportunity to actually be the anchor for our kids and especially in their difficult moments where they are learning how to be human they're learning how to process the hard moments the hard things the disappointments the frustration and just the learning itself learning how to learn it and be adaptable being human you know has its challenges and it's our job as parents to model like a healthy a healthy way of doing all that processing all that and working through all of that and anyway investigating ourselves is where that all starts like I say in many episodes, parenting is about the parent. We need to figure our own stuff out. We need to be able to be emotionally regulated people, confident, intrinsically confident, confident people. I think I just said caffeinated, confident people in order to model that for our kids so that they can become that, so that we can teach what we are through our being. So if there's unhappiness in you, or even unhappiness in your child, if they're disappointed, frustrated, upset, whatever, you don't need to say even like, this is why it gets so sticky with some of like the gentle parenting things that I see and like all of these different scripts and things like, I know that it's sometimes really helpful to have verbiage on hand to kind of like unravel this old conditioning that we all have. But at the same time, sometimes it's, first of all, like, performative and a little bit role play like not authentic um and I think that if we just simply start with that like just be authentic in your response while normalizing whatever it is that you're seeing and not labeling the person as what they're feeling or experiencing instead of saying like oh I see you're angry right now it's like no I see you're feeling upset right now you you're feeling angry right now even then it's like I know what it's like yeah I felt really disappointed I felt really frustrated I feel like even anger Again, this is like slight tangent, but just for some clarification around stuff like that, understanding feelings and and getting very specific about them is a really, really helpful tool as well. And I think I'm going to do a mini book club on nonviolent communication too, because it's just such an awesome book. And he really breaks that down and gives you like a couple of pages of specific feelings like that you actually feel and anger I mean yes we feel angry but what is anger it's a secondary emotion that we feel as a result of something else like being embarrassed or feeling lonely or frustrated or having wants and needs that are unmet or feeling confused feeling um I don't know whatever neglected right but even that neglect neglected isn't technically on that Nathaniel Brandon or not Nathaniel Brandon gosh guys I'm sorry I'm tired Marshall Rosenberg list of feelings it's like because that's something somebody else is doing to you it's not a feeling that you feel you might feel lonely you might feel depressed you might feel frustrated but to feel neglected is again it's like placing it on the, uh, the the other person and it is egoic 
to come back to this book. These, these, those two books actually really go hand in hand. But anyway, investigating it and, and, and understanding like I am not, I am not what I'm feeling. The feeling is just a feeling. It's an experience that I'm having as a result of something else. Eckhart Tolle writes, the primary cause of unhappiness is never the situation, but your thoughts about it. Be aware of the thoughts you're thinking. Separate them from the situation, which is always neutral, which always is as it is. There's a situation or the fact, and here are my thoughts about it. Instead of making up stories, stay with the facts. For example, I'm ruined is a story. It limits you and prevents you from taking effective action. I have 50 cents left in my bank account is a fact. Facing fact is always empowering. Be aware that what you think, to a large extent, creates the emotions that you feel. See the link between your thinking and your emotions. Back to what I said in the very beginning of this episode. We're, we're trying to uncover the basics of consciousness. What do I think and why do I think it? What do I feel and why do I feel it? And then as a result of that, what do I do and why do I do it? In every aspect of your life, these are the questions that you should be asking yourself and uncovering the answers to. Rather than being your thoughts and emotions, be the awareness behind them. Lastly, he says, unhappiness covers up your natural state of well-being and inner peace, the source of true happiness. Again, just reinforcing this major idea for us that when we stop seeking out happiness and we also stop identifying with a state of discomfort or unhappiness we can actually achieve that we can kind of like uncover our inner peace our our presence that's already there it's almost like we're working way too hard and I feel like this a lot of the time when I hear different advice on child rearing, especially today in this convenience era of everything being super quick and snappy and easy and going against our biological needs um, that are just given to us, you know, when we're born, like we need to be connected with, we need things to be slow, we need it to be like less overwhelming and overstimulating, we need our moms to be close, our daddies to be close, like we sometimes need to cry, we need need to attempt to communicate in different ways, I mean there's just, the list goes on and on and I think that we're really being convinced on a larger scale that that's the right direction to go in and I think it it feels really good to be reminded that we don't need to be doing the most it doesn't need to be complicated and we're making it so much harder than it needs to be to be happy it's it's within us it's it's all the distractions and the noise and the chaos and the uh, victimization and and this labeling of ourselves i'm unhappy i'm miserable i'm 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 lonely the storytelling that we do i think it's it brings me a sense of peace personally to be able to step back into my power and say like i i have this within me now i have the ability right now to choose to be present regardless of my circumstances i have the ability to 
state the facts, tell myself the, the truth about the situation so I can become empowered and change the situation. I mentioned this in the last episode because it's a beautiful quote from this book. You know, accept it or change it. Everything else is just madness. And the same thing goes here, but it's also just such a nice feeling. Like this should be, this should make you feel good, <laughs> not ignite your ego to turn on and be like, but these are the reasons why it's not so easy for me to do that. No, no, no. Just enjoy that fact that it's in you, that the peace is there. You don't have to work so hard for it. You can just choose that now. Um, and that kind of segues me again into the discussion of parenthood as a role or a function so it's really tricky for people and I see a lot of over identification with motherhood and it's only natural because it really is an all-encompassing thing like you know we are with our children attending their needs 24 7 I mean it's an it's a full-time job right like I'm gonna need to feed my daughter but she's probably gonna wake up soon I'm gonna need to go up there and nurse her and that's like you know I'm, I'm technically if we're looking at this as a job I'm working through the night you know the night shift the day shift the morning shift <laughs> all the shifts all the time baby and it's a very beautiful thing but you could see easily why people would get very over identified with this role of like I I am a mom and this is my job. This is who I am. And, you know, I feel like that too. Like I said, you know, my my whole like platform, it's the mellow mama. It's not just like Kate <laughs> or Caitlin. Um, it's the mellow mama. You know, like it's a big part or piece of, I guess, like who I am, I suppose. But But it's also really not. Like when I think of like my true essence... I think like that's what allows me to show up as a mom. That's what allows me to um, mother my children with so much love and compassion and connection. But it's not like I I am a mom, right? Like that's a role. Uh, it's so it's so interesting. So I like what he says here about parenting consciously, and he kind of talks more in depth about it too later on so let's just read this he says many adults play roles when they speak to young children they use silly words and sounds they talk down to the child they don't treat the child as an equal the fact that you temporarily know more or that you are bigger does not mean that the child is not your equal and I want to stop there for a second. I address this concept all the time and say, you know, speak in your authentic voice to your children. Don't speak in the third person. Don't talk to your child the way that you would talk to a dog or a cat or a bird. Talk to your child as if you were talking to any other person that you love in your life. Sometimes people overcomplicate this. They get into their ego. They take this information personally because they're like, oh, shoot, I did just say, like, do you want to bring that to mommy? And <laughs> Do you want to come sit with mommy? Right? Or they do like to talk and they'll say, well, what about mother ease? This is a, you know, a biological thing. Like we talk in a softer, sweeter, higher tone. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm, I'm talking about, again, the almost this underlying subconscious condescension um, that comes through in the way that we communicate to young people, even in the way that we physically interact with 
young people by grabbing them by the wrist as opposed to by the hand, by, you know, tugging on them, pulling on them, uh, coercing them to do things. I mean, even just not letting them know when you're going to put something cold on them or wipe their face and just doing things abruptly to them, like as if they are an object and not a human being. Sometimes people get worked up about even this sentence alone that they're your equal due to like the the concept of like respecting your elders and understanding that your parent listen no child needs to be reminded that you are bigger than them that you are smarter than them that you have more life experience than them they know that they look up to you. Children want to connect with their parents. Children want to learn from people that are older than them. People do, children do respect their elders innately when they are given respect. You can probably think back to any person, if you were fortunate to have someone who was a teacher, a friend, if you're very blessed, a parent, that you just like looked up to so much and you just loved spending time with them and they made you feel so important and so loved and you you just valued their opinion you valued their insight that's because this is a real relationship when we're fostering if you are desiring a mutually respectful relationship it has to be that it has to be mutual you can't you can't be disrespectful to someone and say, you need to respect me. I get comments all the time on my videos like, oh yeah, uh, what am I going to do about my kid that's backtalking me at four? And I'm like, I wonder how often you backtalk your child. How do you speak to them on a day-to-day basis? And of course, like, yeah, developmental appropriateness is something that we always need to consider. Being emotionally dysregulated is something that we also need to consider. Like, how do you show up? When you're having a hard time, are you snippy snappy? Are you a little snapping turtle? Okay, when you're upset, when you're frustrated, when you need to eat something, okay, other than like a half bite of a chicken nugget or something like that, how do you show up? What are you modeling? And also, like, it's normal to sometimes, you know, get frustrated and, and speak in a way that's not, tech, it's not a definition of your character. We all have hard moments. Like, it's just so bizarre to me that we've just made it like uh, we completely normalize bashing our children, criticizing them, shaming them, labeling them in their like two second moments in the day when they just need to sleep or need to eat something nourishing or need some time outside or need to get away from a screen or sound, like, or just need you to connect with them just like us. It's like the exact same thing for us. I mean, we just have all of these contradictions when it comes to the way that we relate to kids because of this very thing. We don't view them as an equal. In fact, I would argue that the way that children are treated is inhumane in a majority of cases. If you're utilizing behaviorism on a child that is inhumane. It's designed for rats. It was designed for rodents specifically. This is literally inhumane, not designed for humans. Children are people from infancy. So let's move on. Um, Are you able to fulfill the function of being a parent and fulfill it well 
without identifying with that function, that is, without it becoming a role. Part of the necessary function of being a parent is looking after the needs of the child, preventing them from getting into danger, at times telling the child what to do and what not to do. When being a parent becomes an identity, however, when your sense of self is entirely or largely derived from it, the function easily becomes overemphasized, exaggerated, and takes you over. Some examples that he gives of that are, you know, meeting children's needs can become excessive and turns into like spoiling, preventing them from getting into danger becomes overprotectiveness, helicopter parenting, and interferes with their need to explore and try things out for themselves. Telling children what to do or not to do becomes controlling, overbearing, getting into that mindset of like, you must do what I say because I said so, because I'm playing a role of parent, and this is what it looks like. You're going to respect me. Right? Getting into almost, it's literally an ownership dynamic. What is more, he says, the role playing identity remains in place long after the need for those particular functions has passed. Raise your hand listening if this applies to you and your relationship with a a parent of yours or both parents. At age 40, there are many parents that still are so identified with the role of being a parent that they will think, okay, it's, it's still time for me to tell my child, I know what's best for you. In fact, and I'm saying when the adult child is 40, (laughs) the parent is in their 60s, right? They're still overriding your decision making and stepping on toes. I mean, this is just all too common for at least my subscriber and listener base. Like I get this question nearly as much as I get the question about how to get a spouse on board. How do I get my parents on board the grandparents the in-laws how insane that we need to figure out a separate methodology to have our parents as adult people we need our parents to still first of all approve of the way that we want to relate to our own children approve of the way that we want to keep our house clean or decorate our home or uh, i don't know like something about your marriage or the car you drive, like the job you have. I mean, many people over-identifying with the role of mom or dad often insert themselves into these decisions and, you know, like just life choices and lifestyles without any thought or awareness because they're so in the role they're like I'm still your mom I know what's best for you he even puts it that way they can't let go of the need to be needed by their child even when the adult's 40 (laughs) parents can't let go of the notion I know what's best for you the role of parent is still being played compulsively and so there is no authentic relationship which is my biggest dream and goal for parents and children everywhere not just for you know you and your kids to have this amazing, actually authentic relationship, give and take, mutual trust, mutual respect, and like genuine connection, but also with yourself, this real knowing of self, and that, and also with your spouse, you know, and just all the people that you love in your life. He says parents define themselves by that role, 
and are unconsciously afraid of loss of identity when they cease being parents. If their desire to control or influence the actions of their adult child is thwarted, as it usually is, they will start to criticize or show their disapproval or try to make the child feel guilty, all in an unconscious attempt to preserve their role, their identity. On the surface, it looks as if they were concerned about their child and they themselves believe it, but they are only really concerned about preserving their role, identity. All egoic motivations are self-enhancement and self-interest, sometimes cleverly disguised even from the person in whom the ego operates. I think this is so, again, just painfully relevant, but how freeing to acknowledge it. And also, I talk a lot about how we need to operate from a place of compassion when it comes to all the people in our lives, but especially our own parents. Because oftentimes people will hear what I share and be like, oh, like, you know, that, that sounds like a dig on your parent. My, my own parents said this directly to me. Your, your channel is just a big giant dig on us, right? It's like you're just bashing us and like we were just such terrible parents, right? They're throwing in the guilt and the passive aggression when all I share is objective facts from books that I read, come on, and my own personal experience as a parent. And uh, I was able to step back thanks to reading this book especially, and just acknowledge like how vulnerable it must make them feel for me to share with tons of people on the internet about my experience and, and my, my worldview and my perspective on such a sensitive personal subject, especially considering that technically their job is done, right? They've raised me. <laughs> it's like it's right out there in the open. And, um, and to them, you know, it doesn't necessarily seem positive, even though if it wasn't for my wonderful life and and positive experience and negative experiences healthy things dramatic things I wouldn't be able to share in the way that I do in in my particular voice in my particular style with my particular insight all of it was a gift and everything I've experienced I needed to experience that's why I experienced it that all that said I think that it's is again important to relate to our parents with a compassionate mindset, with with a real true understanding and awareness of why they do what they do. This is another reason why reading this book is so powerful because you can start to recognize the ego, not just in yourself, but in others, which leads to more peace, more compassion, less defensiveness. Like we realize there's nothing, I don't need to defend myself from you. I don't need to defend my honor or protect my phony identity. I know my value is just my birthright. I know that I don't need to prove anything to you. I know that I'm worthy of love and connection, whether or not it aligns with your self-preservation. And that's not always easy much easier said on a podcast than done in real life, <laughs> for sure. That being said, though, at least we can get to that space eventually. The more and more awareness that we build around why people are responding the way that they are, especially our own parents and, and people that we love that we have to interact with, again, like potentially your in-laws, right? And I think, and even your spouse, understanding, okay, maybe what I'm doing, maybe what, the shifts that I'm making and the mindset that I have or the things that I'm adopting are, they feel threatening. They feel scary to 
this person's sense of identity, especially in the case of our, our parents hearing us say, I want to do things differently. I want to have a connected, authentic relationship. Well, gee, doesn't that make it sound like, what did you get with me then? Oh, you don't want what I gave you? We don't have a good relationship, right? Like, oh, so what am I, chopped liver? And it makes sense, right? That some people, again, in their ego, like, because especially we pour and pour into our kids. We pour into this role, especially when you're playing the role (laughs) to a T, right? And you've got the blueprint all rolled out and you're like, this is the perfect mom. This is what I can do as best as I can with what I know and what I have. And then somebody's like, yeah, I'm going to do it a little differently. Okay. I'm going to do things a little, I'm going to shake things up. They're like, what the heck do you mean? I poured my heart and soul into this role. It makes sense that they would feel like you're you slamming what I did, aka you're slamming me. You're 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 trying to take my identity from me. I've been telling myself that I'm a good mom for the last 30, 40 years and now you're saying you want to do it differently, implying that I didn't do it well. <laughs> Right? It, it just leads us to be so compassionate. And that way we can, like I always say, catch more flies with honey. When we start from that space and we have that awareness, we can introduce the conversation in such a delicate way. And we can offer so much reassurance. You know, like, you're obviously a wonderful mom. I, I love you so much. I'm just doing things differently because I think that we could have an even better connection. I think that there are some things that I've learned that are really helpful and like insightful and I don't think anybody was really talking about it 30 years ago, you know, and if they were, it was like few and far between and I just want you to know how much I love you when I introduce this stuff to you, right? Like just constantly offering that reassurance and reminding people from a compassionate place that this is just not personal. It's personal to you and what's going to make your life more full of peace and joy and lightness and presence, but it's not personal to anyone else. He says here, a mother or father who identifies with the parental role may also try to become more complete through their children. The ego's need to manipulate others into filling the sense of lack it continuously feels is then directed towards them. If the mostly unconscious assumptions and motivations behind the parents' compulsion to manipulate their children were made conscious and voiced, they would probably include some or all of the following. I want you to achieve what I never achieved. I want you to be somebody in the eyes of the world so that I too can be somebody through you. Don't disappoint me. I sacrificed so much for you. My disapproval of you is intended to make you feel so guilty and uncomfortable that you finally conform to my wishes, and it goes without saying that I know what's best for you. I love you, and I will continue to love you if you do what I know is right for you. Painful, but true. (laughs) He says here too, if your parents are doing this to you, Do not tell them they're unconscious and in the grip of the ego. That will likely make them even more unconscious because the ego will take up a defensive position. Exactly what I was just talking about. It is enough for you to recognize that it is the ego in them that is not who they are. Egoic patterns, even long-standing ones, sometimes dissolve almost miraculously when you don't oppose them internally. 
opposition only gives them renewed strength. I once heard a expression that I thought was very strange, but it makes a lot of sense now to me. He said, you can't argue with a door. It's a door. It doesn't say anything back, right? <laughs> when we don't offer opposition, and, and whether it's a conscious opposition, like we're, we're saying things outwardly or inwardly, you know, we're holding on to this resentment. When we are simply just like, okay, I'm not, I'm going to choose to be compassionate and aware, but unbothered by this, and to be unshakable, as Janet Lansbury would call it, unruffled by it. We free ourselves, but often we free the potential, like for any objection on the other end too. It has to have something to pose, right? But we can, we can stand firmly and in our own convictions and decisions as adult people, regardless of what other people, again, what it has to do with their self-interest. Um, it says also here, be aware of your own unconscious assumptions or expectations that lie behind your old habitual reactions to them. Um, this part's funny to me. He says in quotations, my parents should approve of what I do. They should understand me and accept me for who I am. Really? Why should they? The fact is they don't because they can't. Their evolving, evolving consciousness hasn't made the quantum leap to the level of awareness yet. They are not yet able to disidentify from their role. Yes, but I can feel happy and comfortable with who I am. I can't feel happy and comfortable with who I am unless I have their approval and understanding. Really? What difference does their approval or disapproval truly make to who you are? All such unexamined assumptions cause a great deal of negative emotion and a lot of unnecessary unhappiness. He says, Be alert. Are some of the things that go through your mind the internalized voice of your father or mother saying perhaps something like, you're not good enough, you will never amount to anything, or some other judgment or mental position? I call this the critical parent, the inner critical parent. And sometimes they are right with me as soon as I wake up or don't wake up in the morning. Oh, there you go again, missing your alarm or like hitting snooze when, of course, you tried to make this commitment to yourself that you were going to start getting up again this hour. There you go. You know, like it's like right when I open my eyes. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else relates to that. In fact, actually, yes, I do know that many of you relate to that because we are just raised with shame and criticism thrown upon us from day one. Uh, but I just, don't you love that? Let me backtrack a second. Don't you love how Eckhart Tolle is just, I feel like he has such a wonderful sense of humor. Really? Why should they? <laughs> so true though. Like wh why, why would we even have this expectation? And, and definitely like, why would we hold on to it and make ourselves suffer for it? I want my parents to understand me. I need, they need to understand me. They need to get it. And I've driven myself crazy in my life with these kind of expectations for other people that I, I wanted desperately for them to like grow and and do learn the things that I was learning right like I mean I started a thinking YouTube channel because I was like people must know this they have to know they have to read this they have to hear this it's going to change their life um but guess what sometimes people are not ready for that they are still identified with whatever roles that they are playing and that is in their mind keeping them safe and that is also just okay it's all right you know if you're out there and listening and you're like dang it that's also me Kate I'm like always trying to like 
to help the people in my life transform and, and there's like a beauty to that it's it's beautiful in some way like to have that in on your heart like ah oh, like this would just make people feel so much peace and like bring more stillness to the world this would like make people feel so much more like deeply connected to one another and kids and oh it's okay it's all okay it starts with you <laughs> that's what matters it starts with you it starts with you and your kids you and your spouse and it's okay you don't need to you don't need to change anybody or definitely don't need to hold on to this expectation that other people need to do what you're doing and learn what you're learning and become what you're becoming and whatever like it's all good again no superiority superiority or inferiority it's 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 really all good it's just all about the journey so he says anyway <laughs> sorry about that he says be alert you know or some of the thoughts that go through your mind the voice of your mom or dad saying perhaps you know like you're not good enough all that stuff if there is awareness in you you'll be able to recognize that voice in your head for what it is an old thought conditioned by the past if there's awareness in you you no longer need to believe in every thought you think it's an old thought no more awareness means presence and only presence can dissolve the unconscious past in you the last thing he says in this particular part of the chapter is if you think you are so enlightened ramdas says go and spend a week with your parents and that is good advice. <laughs> the relationship with your parents is not only the primordial relationship that sets the tone for all subsequent relationships. It's also a good test for your degree of presence. The more shared past there is in a relationship, the more present you need to be. Otherwise, you'll be forced to relive the past again and again. And how true is that, right? If you're feeling so enlightened, let me know around the next holiday that your family celebrates how you how you did how did you how present did you stay how compassionate did you remain right like how unruffled and unbothered and how well did you do it at quieting that 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 voice that inner critical voice but also the one out loud right how good of a job did you do at telling yourself okay i don't need to believe that it's just an old thought just an old thought pattern and if it's coming from another person, same thing. Just an, just an old thought or just a way that they can preserve their sense of identity, their sense of value. Oh, that's too bad because they're wonderful. And they, they shine, baby. They shine without that fake identity. They don't need to grip so tight to that. It's okay. Okay, you can think that about me. You can say that about me. It's all right. You know, <laughs> I see what you're doing there. You, how good of a job you do. I want you to test yourself. Okay, the next aspect of this channel is cool about conscious suffering he says if you have young children give them help guidance and protection to the best of your ability but even more important give them space space to be they come into this world through you but they are not yours the belief i know what's best for you may be true when they're really young but the older they get the less true it becomes the more expectations you have on how their life should unfold, the more you are in your mind instead of being present for them. Eventually, they will make mistakes and they will experience some form of suffering as all humans do. In fact, they may be mistakes only from your perspective. What to you is a mistake may be exactly what your children need to do or experience. Give them as much help and guidance as you can, but realize that 
you may also at times have to allow them to make mistakes, especially as they begin to reach adulthood. And this is the hard part. At times, you may also have to allow them to suffer. Suffering may come to them out of the blue, or it may come as a consequence of their own mistakes. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could spare them from all suffering? No, it wouldn't. They would not evolve as human beings and would remain shallow, identified with the external form of things. Suffering drives you deeper. The paradox is that suffering is caused by identification with form and erodes identification with form. A lot of it's caused by the ego, although eventually suffering destroys the ego, but not until you suffer consciously. This is a hard thing for me as a mom, right? Like, and I know that it's difficult for all parents out there. It's almost like the an- the anti-mission. It's like, what? I want to, yes, I want to avoid my child being in any sort of pain. Emotional pain, physical pain. Like, I want to avoid the pain. That's the whole reason that I'm like, I'm so present. Love them unconditionally. Bring this lightness, right? Accept them wholly and like, uh, let them unfold before you... Um, so that I can avoid the suffering, not so that I can be like, yep, yeah, just gonna, just gonna have to accept that they're gonna suffer at some point. And it really is true though that once we suffer consciously, which I think one cool thing here is, you know, adopting, um, not even adopting, just understanding and building awareness around what we're covering here and having that understanding of what we do and why we do it and what we think and feel and why we think and feel those things modeling that and giving that gift to our children at such an early age I mean how beautiful to have that skill set so that even when things happen eventually when the challenges arise or suffering does happen they will have they will be equipped to do so in a conscious way to understand why whatever's happening is is happening, why it's maybe serving them in a way, it's leading them to grow and change and evolve in a positive way. Um, not not to mention just understanding how they're feeling and why they're feeling that way, and and what kind of identifications and attachments they have that are also contributing to the pain that they're in or the suffering that they're experiencing. I think uh, again. All of this is technically, all the work that we are doing as a parent now is only going to serve them when that time comes. But it is a hard thing for sure <laughs> to acknowledge. Like, you know, maybe this isn't, that that wouldn't be the best thing for there to be zero suffering. He writes here, one of the ego's many erroneous assumptions, one of its many deluded thoughts is, I should not have to suffer. Sometimes the thought gets transferred to someone close to you. My child should not have to suffer. I've thought this many times. That thought itself lies at the root of suffering. Suffering has a noble purpose, the evolution of consciousness and the burning up of the ego. The man on the cross is an archetypal image. He's every man and every woman. As long as you resist suffering, it is a slow process because the resistance creates more ego to burn up. When you accept suffering, however, there is an acceleration of that process, which is brought about by the fact that you suffer consciously. You can accept suffering for yourself, or you can accept it for someone else, such as your child or parent. In the midst of conscious suffering, 
there's already the transmutation, the fire of suffering becomes the light of consciousness. And he finishes by saying that when we have that egoic thought of, I shouldn't have to suffer, that thought makes us suffer so much more, doesn't it? It prolongs the whole experience. It adds another layer of pain to the experience, as opposed to if we weren't to have that thought, if we were to face things head on that challenge us, that are painful to us, and say, this is hard, <laughs> this is painful, and why why am I experiencing this right now, right? Like, why why is this, what is this doing for me in terms of my consciousness, my growth? What is this teaching me? What am I learning? How am I growing? And also, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling that way? I think that the suffering would actually be less, right? We would be able to just sort of move into it in a healthy way, and we would be able to process it in a healthy way, and we would normalize the the experience that otherwise, you know, we would just, I guess, resent. We wouldn't be able to grow from it whatsoever. And now we move into the conversation specifically around role-playing and conscious parenting. Eckhart writes, Many children harbor hidden anger and resentment toward their parents, and often the cause is inauthenticity in the relationship. The child has a deep longing for the parent to be there as a human being, not as a role, no matter how conscientiously that role is being played. You may be doing all the right things and the best you can for your child, but even doing the best you can is not enough. In fact, doing is never enough if you neglect being. I love the expression, we are human beings, not human doings. And before you get into your ego about that sentence, even doing the best you can is not enough, and start saying, well, great, thanks a lot, that's the encouragement I needed today, right? I want you to remember that that actually is encouragement to just simply do less, just be present. That's what your kids want. Even when you have a hard moment, even when you're like, I'm so overstimulated, everybody's yelling, oh my gosh, like... I'm so tired of the chaos. I just don't want to have to clean something else right now. Like I'm so, I just want to meet one of my needs like at some point in the day. Like I, even when you're like that, you're being authentic. Okay, we don't need to. I love Magda Gerber. And one of the things that she wrote in Dear Parent, Caring for Infants with Respect is the, she wrote about the importance of authenticity. And she, I, I'm going to have to like paraphrase. I don't know this off the back of my hand, but I think like she she wrote something along the lines of like smiling in a baby's face when you're clearly when they're clearly upset is just so strange and bizarre and conditioning them to play the role like no 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 you're happy you're okay we're going to laugh even though you're clearly uncomfortable and upset and trying to communicate something no smile smile laugh we're happy hope hit my head ha 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 let me make you laugh let me change your state even tickling i uh, people get up in arms about this one too they get in their ego because again they feel like i tickle my kids and i'm a good mom you're threatening my role as a good mom. Hey, stop it. You're messing with my identity. No, dude, just cut it out. It's a role. It's an identification. 
stop it. You're a good mom, okay? <laughs> Chill out. <laughs> Get out of your ego. It's not helping you. So anyway, I don't tickle. I don't tickle my kids for a number of reasons. I feel that it puts people into fight or flight mode. I feel that even though someone is laughing, it doesn't necessarily mean that something is ah, ha, ha, funny. It's actually just a stress response in the body. It's like, I don't have control over my body, so it's sort of like an adrenaline rush. It's a high. We're like, oh my gosh, this is foreign. Like somebody's touching me. I don't know what to expect. I don't know what's going to happen next. And I don't have control of my body. And this is obviously something that, and you might be rolling your eyes. I know, I know. But it's not healthy. It's not healthy to condition our kids with that as a normal thing. Like, oh, look how fun it is for you to be out of control of your body in a stress state, a dysregulated state um, by me, your caregiver, right? Like I'm sending you into a state of technically feeling unsafe, but it's like exciting at the same time, this sort of like addiction to excitement. And um, on top of all of that, the real thing that has to do with today's conversation is why do we need to constantly change our child's state? Why do we need to evoke something out of them? I want you to laugh for me. Laugh, baby. Dance, monkey, dance, right? You know, you'll start to notice this more and more as you develop more awareness. Like people are always trying to change each other's states, uh, especially children. Um, It's almost like, again, they're not enough by just being, by being still, by being sleepy, by being present, just being a baby or just playing like engaging in something on their own. We have to interrupt them. We have to interject. We have to direct them. We have to criticize, correct. No, 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 do it this way. That's not how you do it. Oh, here, let me teach you. Let me teach you. Let me show you. And all of this is so well-intentioned, but it's important to ask, like, why? And and also, well-intentioned, how often, how often is what is, quote, well-intentioned about ourselves, about us living up to the role that we're playing? It's, these are all important questions to be asking yourself, okay? So when it comes to conscious parenting, the name of the game is authenticity, being a real human to your children. And that means, you know, showing up authentically even when you're like, dang it, I am, I'm not feeling good. Not, not pretending to feel good when you don't feel good. Not pretending to be happy when you're like, I just, I don't know, right now I'm feeling slow. Maybe I'm feeling whatever all the feelings they could be feeling it's okay it's good for your children to know the real you and to see human life modeled for them and it's not always perfect it's not always sunny and 75 it can be close to that the more awareness you build because again even the hard times you'll be like huh this is hard i wonder what i'm learning here i wonder why i'm feeling this way what does this have to do with my ego what am I trying to prove? Who, what am I trying to be? What am I trying to live up to, right? You start to like, and then all of a sudden life gets way less serious and way less intense. And the severity of things just really dies down a little bit. Um, Moving forward, he says, how do you bring being into the life of a busy family, into the relationship with your child? The key is to give your child attention. There are two kinds. One we might call form-based attention. The other is formless attention. Form-based attention is always connected in some way with doing or evaluating. Have you done your homework? Eat your dinner. Tidy up your room. Brush your teeth. Do this. Stop doing that. Hurry up. Get ready. Even that just like 
oh my gosh, ugh, put me into like a uh, <laughs> stress state. What's the next thing we have to do? The question pretty much summarizes what family life is like in many homes. Form-based attention is of course necessary and has its place, but if that's all there is in the relationship with your child, then the most vital dimension is missing and being becomes completely obscured by doing, by the cares of the world, as Jesus puts it. Formless attention is inseparable from the dimension of being. And how does that work? As you look at, listen to, touch, or help your child with this or that, you're alert, still, completely present, not wanting anything other than that moment as it is. And that way, you make room for the being. In that moment, if you're present, you're not a father or mother. You are the alertness, the stillness, the presence that is listening, looking, touching, even speaking. You're the being behind the doing. And take a minute to like savor that concept. I mean, that's a beautiful thing for me to even just visualize. You are the being behind the doing. That is the essence of slow living. That's the essence of conscious parenting. That's that's what Magda Gerber means when she says, observe more, do less. Hopefully that clears things up for you if you've ever confused that sentiment with neglecting your children or disengaging from them or prioritizing your own thoughts or needs or something in the midst of their play or whatever, just their daily life. It is, it couldn't be further from those things it's the epitome of being present with your child being engaged with your child having this deeper knowing of your child and connection to them with them and showing them what it's like to be a human being showing them that that's even possible today I think is a very beautiful thing and almost like a privilege to to learn and model He says, in the human dimension, you are unquestionably superior to your child. You're bigger, stronger, know more, can do more. If that dimension is all you know, you will feel superior to your child, if only unconsciously. And you will make your child feel inferior, if only unconsciously. There is no equality between you and your child because there is only form in your relationship. And in form, you are of course not equal. You may love your child, but your love will be human only. That is to say, conditional, possessive, intermittent. Only beyond form, in being, are you equal. And only when you find the formless dimension in yourself can there be true love in that relationship. The presence that you are, the timeless I am, recognizes itself in another and the other. The child, in this case, feels loved. That is to say, recognized all the time our children are asking us for this recognition all the time we are asking other people for this all the time we ask our spouses for this through our behavior through just the little tiny things throughout the day just like that quote you know a million times throughout the day our kids say do you see me do you hear me do I matter And their behavior is a reflection of our response. How do we show up? Are we showing up as the doing? Or are we showing up as the being behind the doing? Are we able to offer that formless connection with them? That formless attention to them? 
again, I think today it's it's hard to offer that sometimes. We get so caught up and also in general, we're kind of set up to fail uh, with in, in so many ways. And again, even that is a bit egoic. It's like this victimhood mindset where it's like we disempower ourselves. So I'm going to let go of that. But in some ways, it really is true that you, you just have to be very intentional about the way that you set up your family, about the way that you handle the, the mundane, the, the actual doing in your life so that this becomes more available to you so that you start to see all of the little doorways to it to the being you see the opportunities and you're looking for them as opposed to operating in chaos and survival mode in the doing mode as jesus put it the cares of the world he goes on to say to love is to recognize yourself in another not your identified self, by the way. I wrote that in this book. Not this egoic sense of self, this role that you've cultivated. Your real self, that shiny light in you that's just there, boom, in you when you were born. The other's otherness then stands revealed as an illusion pertaining to the purely human realm, the realm of form. The longing for love that is in every child is the longing to be recognized not on the level of form, but on the level of being. If parents honor only the human dimension of the child, but neglect being, the child will sense that the relationship is unfulfilled, that something absolutely vital is missing, and there will be a buildup of pain in the child and sometimes unconscious resentment toward the parents. Why don't you recognize me? This is what the pain or resentment seems to be saying. When someone recognizes you, that recognition draws the dimension of being more fully into this world through both of you. And this is actually something that's going to be covered in an upcoming podcast episode as well as in my course. How we think, again, by doing so much that that's, what, that's enough. That's what our children need. I need to do, 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 do. I, I am the coach. I am the this. I help them with that. I am all hands on deck. What do you mean I'm not doing enough? What do you mean I'm not meeting our children's needs? What do you mean I need to do more? What more could I possibly do? The being is what actually needs to be done. In fact, it could easily replace all of the doing. As sad as that is, we work so hard and we do so much for our kids, but so easily we could outdo ourselves by just being. And to me, that's a beautiful thing. It's a very freeing thing to recognize. The last idea that I want to talk about in this episode, I'm going to continue into another one. I, I love the podcast format because you can just pause this and resume it anytime and I'm sure you probably already have because we're in deep I don't know who has this kind of spare time as a mom unless <laughs> maybe somebody's out of town and you've got the night to yourself once the kids are asleep or something like that but either way I'm assuming that you're like pausing this and coming back to it reflecting on it so I'm gonna finish on this last idea and then we're gonna continue in the next episode to continue talking about the stuff that we haven't covered and Maybe even just reflect again on some of the things we've already mentioned here in this this episode today. The last thing I want to talk about is how 
he states, when you don't play roles, it means there's no self, ego, in what you do. There's no secondary agenda, protection, or strengthening of yourself. As a result, your actions have far greater power. He says, as soon as you are trying to be this or that, you're playing a role. Just be yourself is good advice, but it can also be misleading. The mind will come in and say, let's see, how can I be myself? Then the mind will develop some kind of strategy, how to be myself, another role. How can I be myself is in fact the wrong question. It implies that you have to do something to be yourself. (laughs) But how doesn't apply here because you are yourself already. Just stop adding unnecessary baggage to who you already are. But I don't know who I am. I don't know what it means to be myself. If you can be absolutely comfortable with not knowing who you are, then what's left is who you are. The being behind the human. A field of pure potentiality rather than something that is already defined. Give up defining yourself to yourself or to others, you won't die, you will come to life. Again, that theme of doing less, being more, (laughs) that this freeing opportunity that we don't have to work so hard, we don't have to try so hard when it comes to like proving our value and we're sabotaging our actual God-given beauty, our light, our gorgeous essence. I sound so hippy-dippy sometimes, but I really mean it. Like, how ironic is it that we're trying so hard to be valuable, to be seen, to be recognized? And by doing so, we're kind of like thwarting the perfect way to actually accomplish that. It's sort of like, With conscious parenting, people are like, oh, well, how are you going to have any control? You know, let me know in the teen years how that rolls out for you. They're so upset about it. Like, yeah, you're ruining the next generation of people. This is why everybody's so whatever today. I'm like, gosh, it's so ironic that the one thing that they want, they could actually obtain by not trying to get it. It's like the craziest catch-22. The more you try to control somebody, the less control you have. The more you try to relate to someone, to recognize someone, to be the being and stop it with all the doing, the more influence you'll have. The more connected you'll be to your child, the more control you'll technically obtain. And the same thing goes here. The more important you want to feel on a subconscious or conscious level, the more recognized you want to be, the less work you need to do in terms of like this role that you're playing, this identity that you've cultivated. That's making it weird. It's almost like making it, you know how Steve Irwin used to say like the water was murky? It's like murky water. Like you're making it murky. You're kind of like clouding up your light okay just don't do that you don't need to do that and i like that he says don't be concerned with how others define you when they define you they're limiting themselves so it's their problem whenever you interact with people don't be there primarily as function or a role but as a field of conscious presence i heard once uh, that living with eckhart tolle was like living in a think tank and i believe that (laughs) he's like a little human yoda or something like when he talks he even talks 
with such intentionality. It's so slow. Um, but he goes on to say, why does the ego play roles? Because of one unexamined assumption, one fundamental error, one unconscious thought. And that thought is, I am not enough. There's no other reason that we would be doing this, that we would be cultivating these roles for ourselves and playing all these roles and, and identifying with them and getting upset about them when we feel like people don't recognize these roles that we're playing and doing and like don't appreciate them and we can get defensive and take things personally because of them. Like it's all because of that one deep-rooted insecure notion. I'm not enough. And we have the ability as parents to constantly send our children the very opposite message. Not just in the way that we interact with them, in the little details, in little ways that we can adjust and, and shift our mindset and like, you know, make make little changes to our verbiage, but in the way that we show up as this conscious presence as unbothered right like a, a, a lighter presence a lighter state of being where we are just actually being we can show that to our kids that 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 is not just enough that's amazing it's beautiful and and perfectly designed that is what that's the main takeaway I want you to get from this super duper long <laughs> podcast episode and this like mini book club series. That is the main takeaway that I really want everyone to get from all of my work. When we can acknowledge that we, just as we are, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers style, are enough. I like you just the way you are. Our children receive that message loud and clear through our being not through what we're trying to do or trying to teach but literally in the way that we show up as well as in the way that we unravel and sort of crumple up and throw in the garbage bin all of that trash conditioning from the inner critical parent the shame the criticism the guilt and anything that has sent us the opposite message that we have to do have to perform have to play a role in order to be enough to be worthy just not true and when we let go of that our children get that message so that's what we want and i'm really excited for what's to come for everybody listening as we make these shifts together develop this deeper awareness and step into the consciousness that we're designed to be living in and with thank you so much for listening to this podcast episode thank you so much for spending time with me for reading this book if you're going to read it or if you've ha you have read it thank you so much for allowing me to be my authentic self for me to talk in the way that I like to talk about the things that I like to talk about <laughs> in the way that is most authentic to me by doing that and, and showing up for me you give me that recognition that we all yearn for and I hope to do the same for all of you at least in this little wrap-up moment where I tell you from the bottom of my heart what it means to have people to do this alongside to learn and grow with to be able to share the things that speak to me uh, loud and clear and make my heart 
grow so big and beat so hard or like oh I'm so passionate about it um I just I hope you know how much I appreciate you and what an impact you're making not just on you know yourself but on your children or potential future children and the world around you I think that the more I mean it's proven fact that the more confident people are the more kindness they show to other people, the more love they show to other people, the more available they are to love other people, to be emotionally available and vulnerable and connected. So by by stepping into your authentic self, your intrinsic self and that being state, you are making a huge contribution to the betterment of the world. And that might sound a little... Dwight from the office like together we can prevail (laughs) but I really mean it and I'm just so 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 grateful for all of you I can't wait to record the next episode it probably won't be as long-winded as this one but it'll be good because this stuff is just so good and I just enjoy talking about it so much and I hope that you guys enjoyed it too if you loved it please share this episode with people that you love that you think will at least be a little receptive to it <laughs> um share you know on instagram i'll i'll share it too i'll share it if you tag me follow me on instagram if you don't already it's the mellow mama same on tiktok with a little underscore look at my youtube channel and scour through there for things that you think are going to appeal to you in the meantime if you've listened to all my podcast episodes there's so much great long format material on there about all kinds of different like little intricate details of conscious parenting that are going to help you in terms of like actually applying the being and less of the doing like just little shifts that we can make in the way that we speak to our children the way that we interact with them and if you want to take it even a step further take my course become a course student go to themellowmama.org and check out everything that i have to offer there I think the course is just such a wonderful resource and tool to streamline all of this from start to not really finish, but you know, you're going to feel very grounded and confident about your approach, what you want, how you're going to actually achieve that. Like, what is the system that we're going to put in place to get there, to get to the being, to get to the, my child genuinely feels seen and recognized as as their whole self and and also your inner child receives what what they deserve and have deserved all along as well it it covers so much and it's just going to continue to flourish and and grow i'm going to add so many things to it along the way as as my course community grows so check that out again www.themellowmama.org and thank you again a million times over for listening and being here with me i just love all of you so much and appreciate you so much for being here until next time i will see you later thanks again